Let's go ahead and get this started. I mean, okay. uh, you you recently put out – I want to talk about your book first because you recently put oh, okay. out a book. Yeah, this was uh, – when did the book drop? It dropped uh, October of uh, 2019? I've, I've lost track, but I think it's around October or November. I, I don't okay. really know exactly when. Well, the book is called The Loopholes Dossier, a satire. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. And it, I've, I've been uh, – kind of reading reviews and stuff a lot lately on your book uh, obviously to get prepared for this interview but one of the things that just blows me away is the idea of the book um how how did you get this idea and, and can you explain to people where the idea for the book came from okay but uh I, i've never read anything about the book there is stuff out about this reviews of the book and uh, well no you can go to, you can go to amazon and actually see uh, uh, people that have reviewed the book. There's a couple oh, reviews. Really? Yeah, yeah. But they uh, have on, on, on Amazon. They have editorial reviews. There's all kinds of stuff. So. Oh, all right. I'll, I'll check yeah. it out. Um, yeah. Well, the the idea for the book was uh, I want to write a book. That was the idea for the book. I wanted to write a book, and because um, I have a lot of writing uh, that I just put in drawers and stuff. So I had um, basically I had one third of it already written that I had just had in a drawer. And that was the seven, uh, the seven fables of sometimes Jones. So, so uh, the first third of the book is seven satirical fables about this character, sometimes Jones, the first, and th they're all stages of his life. So the first uh, fable is about uh, a runaway boy named Sometimes Jones who runs away from his father, didn't get along with his father. He runs away at 15 to San Francisco. And it turns out that uh, at 15, he was a, a, a um, what, what's it when, when, when you're just born with somebody, with something that you know, like how many, uh, there's a movie made about it with uh, uh, autism. What? Well, not autism, but um, when you can just know if if a box of toothpicks spills on the floor, you yeah, know yeah, I know, I know, uh, you're talking uh, about like Rain Man. Yeah, Rain Man. Well, I um, uh, that's uh, well, what what is that called? What, what the disease that, that Rain Man had? I'm like, spacing on. Yeah, it starts with an S. Yeah, uh, yeah. Anyway, he has that. The, this 15-year-old runaway boy named Sometimes Jones, it turns out he has that for pickpocketing, for, for being a pickpocket. He's a, he's, a, he's a born pickpocket. Yeah. He's a, he's a genius pickpocket at 15. So he runs away to San Francisco, and his life changes because of that. He becomes the most the best pickpocket on Market Street, which is a <laughs> yeah. it's like Broadway. And... Um, and he uh, he wheedles his way into a gang because uh, one of the things that he picks the pocket of, and and this is the name of the 
the fable. It's called Sometimes Jones and the Magic Credit Card. He picks, uh, somehow he picks, well, there's a way that he does it, which is explained in the story. He actually picks the pocket of the president of the United States. And in the print and in the wallet of the presidency, in, in the wallet, is a, is a magic credit card that's good for one life. Ooh. So that ultimate like power, that. yeah, ultimate power has two lives. So the president gets this get out of jail free card. He gets another life. So he has it now and he uses that. This 15 year old kid uses that. And he becomes, he's so good pickpocket and he's so crazy because he has this one life that he thinks, you know, that he, um, he uses it in very different ways. Some of them are very clever and some of them are very not so clever and bad. And there's ramifications, you know, yeah. <laughs> with, with celebration comes responsibility. And so that's what the, the fairy tale is about. And then, how what he's doing with this card and what it's doing to him and how it okay and then the second and third and fourth and fifth is so the second one is about when he's about 18 or 19 and then it's about the one 20 and 25 and then 35 and then 45 and then finally at about uh 45 or 55 i think is the last one and that's and, and then you see uh he's finally he reaches he runs away again but this time to Tibet and uh, becomes, yeah. And he, and he climbs this high mountain, this high mountain and he, and he gets into a uh, Tibetan monastery. He figures, well, the solution is he becomes a monk and uh, his epiphanies are quite, <laughs> quite amazing uh, what he does with it because he's not, he's not a, he's not an ordinary thinker. So he uses all these epiphanies uh, to his own end. I got to uh, ask, Real quick, where did you? Where did the ideas for these stories come from? Are these based in in reality? Maybe totally uh, reality. Totally reality. You know, I mean, no. like, I mean, like, you know, coming up and growing up, and are, are these stories close to home? Oh, all of them is based on something that happened to me, or or some thought that I had. The first one is, uh, man, I didn't want. I in my mind, I ran away as a young child when I was fifteen. I didn't do it until I was eight. I mean, until, you know, until it was, I, I went, to, I went away to college and then after that, I just kept going, but you know, I went away to school, but I, but in my mind, I all 16, 17 and 18, I, I was running away every, so that, and then I, I also have, uh, weird talents, you know, like I, I, uh, balancing talent or juggling talent or, just a, not, nothing that you could plug in and make money at. Just, yeah. just weird, hey, you can do that, or I'm a funny guy, or blah blah. So that was what the his his miraculous talent was. This this pickpocketing talent. So, and then each one, then like in one of them, when he's around thirty five, he falls in love when he was eighteen. So there's one where he he falls in love. Then there's one where he gets and he gets he gets trapped in quicksand and how oh I love that, that. and then uh, so each one and then he gets married and uh, which I one time I almost got married and 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 then the what happens when it doesn't work out when that marriage doesn't doesn't work out so yeah each each 
uh, fable of the seven fables is based on some point, some little thing that happened to me. Yeah. And I just expanded. Look, my favorite guy in the whole universe is Aesop. So that's where yeah. I'm coming from. I mean, yeah. I, that's all I read when I was a kid is Aesop and Grimm's and uh, Mother Goose and, yeah. and just everything, you know, all these stories, you know, just, just stories. I love uh, a lot of those. I love a lot of those early uh, fairy tales because what a lot of people don't realize is that some of them are the original, you know, German fairy tales are very dark. And, you know, oh, it's man. Hansel, oh. And Gretel, you know, yes. Grim, the Grimm's boys, man. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure in the original they were t terrifying. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's how they taught in those days. Yes. They're exactly right. knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they would uh, they would they would pass it down through oral tradition, and you would get these fairy tales through. Oral yeah, tradition. and yeah. how are you going to remember stuff unless you're scared? You know, silly. So yes. and you remember, oh wow, you know, stay away from snakes because you know these. They would tell you stories about monster snakes. So, yeah. yeah, right. Uh, and then so that was that's the first third, uh, and then. Uh, and I did study Zen Buddhism for a while, so that's when it goes to Tibet. But I just use it to my own ends. Well, you know, I wanted, I wanted, I really wanted to start with the book because you know I've heard that you refer to your upbringing as a very anti-education kind of. Whoa, anti -art. yeah, performing something and dressing in costumes. Uh, as far back as I can remember, I would uh, entertain my mom with stories. Um, even as a little kid, you know, even if I came out from play, I, the first thing I would do is I would tell the whole thing. You know? <laughs> we were playing basketball and, or we were playing tag and da, da, da. Uh, and then I would have adventures when I would, uh, narrative adventures where I would narrate my adventures, which sometimes turned awful. Well, one day we were playing scientists. I was about, luckily I was very young, maybe nine or eight if that, but around that, you know, uh, we were playing scientists down in the cellar. We lived in an apartment building, uh, just two or three stories, that was all. But they had a furnace down there. So, the fire, you know, a coal-burning furnace. Oh, yeah. So you could, you know, you can go down to the furnace. It's just a cellar, you know, and there was the furnace over in the corner, and you could open a door, you know, and shovel coal in, you know, just like. So we were playing scientists, and there was a lot of paint cans and kerosene and wood and coal. Yeah. And okay. we were experimenting certain things and throwing them into the uh, furnace, opening the door and throwing them in. So, you know, first you take a piece of coal and you throw it in. Oh, well, that, that doesn't do anything. You know, it just starts to glow after a while. That's nothing. Then you do, we took some a little uh, paint on a stick take a little paint on a stick and you throw it. Oh, that burns. That's pretty good. That, that burns good. And then um, I found a, a then I, the master scientist, found a uh, can of kerosene. <laughs> so here's my, here's my, no, so I thought scientists mix stuff. So let's, I, I should mix this. So I got a glass to mix things in. Poured a glass full of kerosene into it, and then I poured a, and then I took a lump of coal. This is the mixture: a lump of coal and kerosene, and throw that in the fire. 
and the fucking thing blew up. I mean, it shot out like a, you know, like in a science fiction thing. Yeah. You know, I threw this whole glass in it, and I was standing there, and it went, it, it enveloped my head. I just saw white. And then there was silence. There was five of us, and there was silence. And I turned around because <laughs> I, wow. And then I turned around, and they just, the, the kids even went silenter. And then they go, and they didn't know what to say. Well, I had burned my face off, is basically what I had done. Wow. And I say I was lucky because I was, yeah. And I said, luckily, I was young enough so that it all grew back. The doctor said if I had been two years older, scarred for life. Wow. Eyebrows, everything. So I didn't know that at the time. So I walked outside. They did just, they, they all wanted to go home or something or go home. They kept saying, go, go home. You got to go home, man. You got to go home. I didn't feel anything. I mean, my eyes were okay. I, I could see. I didn't feel anything. So I went upstairs. So I went upstairs. I figured to go home. I lived only three doors away or something like that. It was one of these uh, long apartment buildings where you just uh -huh. had steps and steps and steps. So I went down there. And as I'm walking, maybe, I don't know, 20, 50 feet to my house, to my steps. And there's this woman with packages, shopping packages, walking towards me. And as soon as she saw me, she screamed and dropped her packages, ran into the middle of the street and flagged down the first car. And she grabbed me and she threw, and the guy says, what's, what's going on? She opened the door and she threw me in. She says, get this kid to a hospital now. And he looked and he goes, holy. And he, they zoomed off, ran to the hospital, and they immediately took me into the ward, plastering my face with all kinds of shit and wrapping me with, so I was like a mummy from here up, boom. And then wow. they had two little, poked two little things from my eyes and just a little hole for a straw so that I could suck water. They called my mother and I just kept on saying to the doctor, I'm, I'm a mummy from here up. And I'm coming here, don't tell my father, okay? Don't <laughs> tell my father. <laughs> don't tell him. So yeah. okay, we'll call your mother. We'll call your mother. So she came and she screamed, you know. Oh my God, oh my God. And I said, Don't tell dad, don't tell dad. <laughs> That's, all. <laughs> That's all I said for like, I think, a half hour. Don't tell dad. No, okay, I won't tell him. Yeah. And then when he came home, I just, she took me home and I was just sitting there. Now, I, I didn't feel a, a thing. So I didn't know what was going on. And I hadn't, and they wouldn't let me look in the mirror. They, Smart. They wouldn't. Uh, so I didn't know what it looked like. So I, I just, now I can see I look like a mummy. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, from here on up. And, and then I went to school. I mean, I could go to school. Uh, you know, I just would have to get redressed every day or every other day. or I don't know. But when I went to school, I was a big hero. That was like amazing, man. I was like a rock star. I mean... <laughs> Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, I, I, me and just hey, and all everybody's talking to me, and you know, so maybe that's where I got the shot of show business. Wait a minute, you know, I don't know what? if I could burn my face a lot, but I could do something to get this attention.
<laughs> well, you know, if, if you're right, like when kids break their arm or something in school, you know, every, yeah. they want to get to school to show everybody their cast and everybody wants yeah, to sign find it. Yeah, right. Yeah. So you had the ultimate, man. Like uh, you, you, there's there's arms, there's legs, there's but man, when you fuck with your head, you got the ultimate. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I don't know. I, I was explaining the answer to a question now. I just forgot. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Basically, when did you first realize you wanted to be an actor? I mean, when did oh, you start? okay. So, so that that I got off on that. The, the, the when I got to school, not my. I tell you, when see, I didn't like. I said they wouldn't let me look at my face, and I just looked in the mirror and I saw a mummy, and that was like far out, you know. Holy yeah. Wow, you know. But I still was afraid of my my father. He hadn't come home yet, you know. So he was still at work. I, my mother called him and said, hey, when you come home, you know, don't get crazy. He burned his face, you know. Don't. But she said, well, dad's coming home now, you know, so just, just don't worry. Don't worry. She kept, she said, this is going to But when he came home and my father, um, he lost it. He, he was, I'd never seen him like that. He was just so shocked and, you know, like a father would be. Yeah. Oh my God. And when my father didn't punish me or yell at me, that told me, oh, I've done something really bad to myself. You know, that, that's what woke me up to, holy shit, I do. It was so, you know, and my mother was, no, no, it's be okay. So, yeah, that, that, that changed my mind about what I had done. I oh, but okay. So really got me into show business. Was after that, I was always doing and dressing in costumes. And I would sleep costume. If I had a, if I could buy for a birthday present, when I got a like a kind of an army uniform because my uncles were all in the army and stuff. So I got like a you know a soldier's thing. I don't know, but I slept in it. You know, I mean, I yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't take it off. Yeah, every, every young boy has that same thing, you know. I, I, I guess you know, for any costume, I would, you know, yeah. just put a. Uh, and there was always, you know, playing that. But so finally, when I but but then I that was knocked out of me, and, that, and that's where you get these no education, no curiosity, no no reading. So I, I got into. Now, luckily for me, my parents. Uh, I'm not I've never discussed my my youth. So this is interesting to me. Uh, I, I never, um, my, my parents were anti-education. I mean, they let me go to school and stuff, but anti-curiosity. In other words, just learn what you have to learn. But, you know, and so the only books they had were collections of stuff that you buy with the bookshelf. <laughs> you know, they, so it's, the entire Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah. The entire famous books. Yeah. You know, you know, Cervantes and Shakespeare. Guy, yeah. And that was that was the only books in the house, plus comic books and my fairy tales. Yeah, hey, I'm good with comic books. So I would go through the comic books and I would go through the fairy tales. And so uh, when I got bored, because I loved to read, remember, there was no television. I mean, it was black and white, but except for Milton Berle, I think. I don't, I don't remember anything. Uh, but it was black and white. And 
yeah. was still reading. So I started to read all the classics. I was reading Shakespeare, you know, like 15 and 14. <laughs> I mean, I didn't know what I was reading. I was reading, uh, you know, Dostoevsky, uh, Anna Karenina. Uh, I, I, and I didn't realize what I was reading. I mean, I was just, I would read like, you know, 20 pages. And then if uh, I didn't understand what was going on, then I would go to the next book. Yeah. So I was reading hunks of this stuff and getting really, and I didn't realize what I was doing until one day, I think I was like, what's the first grade you have to write an essay on? You oh, know, geez. write an like, essay on a book, but you're pretty young, right? Yeah, yeah. It's public school, it's young. So the first time I had to write an essay, you know, these are read a book and write an essay on it. Okay, you know. And then come and then she said, Now tomorrow, what I want you to do is I want you to come in and tell me what book you're gonna read. And then I'll give you a week and you read it, and then you come back and you give an essay. So you told the whole class. So, so then Larry, what are you gonna read? Anya Karenina. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. I mean, I didn't know what I was. I was just Anya Karenina. She's that's great, Larry. I mean, she was just really effusive about it. <laughs> That's really great, Larry. Go ahead. So now I thought, well, okay, so I'll read it. I mean, I just read the title. Yeah. So I started to read it, and I really didn't. I read about, again, 20 pages. I think that's my limit now, even, even as an adult. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm now, with you know, it's 20 pages. You know, if it doesn't yeah. catch me, man, I'm on to the next great classic. <laughs> so. Yeah. I, uh, I read about 20 pages, and I read a report on that. And then I read the last couple of pages, like about three or four pages. <laughs> yeah, like and most of it. Yeah. It starts out this way, and this is how it ends up. I got like a B-plus or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> what, um, what was your, your – well, you came to prominence as a member of uh, a sketch troupe called The Committee, if I'm correct. Yeah. And, and and uh which is a noted 60s comedy troupe um uh what can you tell us about your time with that with that in, within the committee and and what that was like during that time okay well how i got to the committee is how i got into show business which is really going to answer the last question you asked but after that after i left public school and i got into high school i stopped reading really and I got into poetry and the reason I got into poetry in high school because there was a poetry club that only had girls in it ah. and I thought hey if I get into poetry now I had no idea because I was a very naive kid I I, I probably still am in a way but when I was a, a kid because I had no education no curiosity very not even right wing. It wasn't even Republican. It was just reactionary. I mean, that, that was just it. Um, I was very naive. So I didn't realize what, what the scuttlebutt about a boy in an all girls class would be. I mean, I got, I mean, all my boy friends would just jeer the hell out of me. I oh, mean, yeah. Verboten. But I thought, well, I get laid, you know. Yeah. Heck. Now, that never happened. Because. <laughs> But it's always the initial, like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, for class for girls, man. I got to get a date or something. I get a girlfriend, something. No. But I stuck with it through the whole term, the whole the whole year. And I really did. And that's the writing and, and the education that I got was in poetry. We read all the classic poetry. I, I read all the good stuff. 
from Ogden Nash to Shakespeare. Yep. You know, just the whole thing. And, and um, layers limericks. I mean, we just got into it. So it's really cool. So I, I was very happy for the wrong reason. <laughs> I got yeah. the education for the wrong reason. I was going in to get laid, and you give me poetry, <laughs> education? What the heck? How did that happen? So, uh, but years later, it paid off really well. So, uh, so, uh, so there I got that. And then when I went into college, they wanted me to get an education, go to college. And I was really a good boy also, which is not a good thing. I want to listen to my parents. So I went to college. Nobody that I've ever revered, looked up to, or wanted to mentor me ever went to college. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> oh, I, I, they did. They dropped out. <laughs> all, the, all the people that I really look up to nowadays, you, yeah. know, you look back, no, nah, I dropped out, man. No, nah, I didn't go. You know, I just, I just did what I was starting to do now, you know. So I went to college. So I, discovered, I graduated as an industrial designer. I'm, I'm, I'm getting to how I got into show business. Uh -huh. And then my best friend in college was Carl Gottlieb, who later was to write Jaws. Mm -hmm. I didn't, we didn't both know that, that he was going to write Jaws later on. But he was a really smart kid, and we got to be friends, and we stuck up for each other in college, and blah, blah, blah. And when we graduated, he said, I'm going to New York to become a writer. Why don't you come with me, and we'll be roommates. And I go, great, let's do that because I don't want to do this industrial design shit, which started out like at a 75 or $100,000 a year for what they wanted me to do, which mm -hmm. was design cars in Detroit. And I wanted to go to Greenwich Village and starve. That's, that's kind of what happened. Uh, yeah, so I, don't, I don't blame you on that. Um, there's something to be said about working that hamster wheel job or going out and maybe starving for a couple of days and being happy. There's a big yeah. Now I didn't know exactly that I was going to starve, but it was an adventure that he was offering me, Carl. Let's go to Greenwich Village, you know. Yep. Greenwich Village was a you know like a, like a circus to me. To, yeah. Uh, kids, Greenwich Village, and then he was going to be a writer, and he was very focused. So I knew I'm going with somebody who's focused, so I can pick up that vibe because I really didn't want to do anything. I just wanted to go with Carl to Greenwich Village. You know, so yeah. I did. And then I, I, I um, what I did was I, I swabbed the duck boards in a bar from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. After close, they locked me in the bar and I just cleaned up. I never want to see another peanut shell <laughs> as long as I live. So um, I, I cleaned up. I swabbed the deck, you know, behind on the duck boards. And then at six o'clock in the morning. So I was in Greenwich Village, six o'clock in the morning. The chef, it was like a bar and grill. The chef would come in and unlock the door from the outside and let me out. So I had to wait. I couldn't wow. I, I, I couldn't get out myself. So they locked me in. So I guess for robberies or something, I, I don't know. <laughs> me. But what I was doing, because I was only getting a couple of bucks. It was only four hours work every night, five days a week, six days a week. So uh, to feed myself and pay the rent. Uh, so I was stealing food from the grill part of the bar okay yeah so I, went to the, I would go into the and and i always rule and i got this i swear to god i <laughs> got this from harpo marx i always wore a raincoat have you ever watched you know marx brother movies oh yeah i'm a big and, and he opens his he opens his raincoat and all spoons and knives and forks fall out well that's what i had in mind <laughs> if, if harpo can do it 
So can I. So I always wore a raincoat, and I filled all the in. It had an in one inside pocket, had two you know outside pockets, and then the raincoat uh, covered me. So when I stood up, I shoved everything into my belt and in yep. my back, and so and then I zipped it up, or I buttoned it up, and I would walk out and I would wait by the door, right by the door, because I didn't want to talk to him. I didn't want him to see any bulge or anything like that. So I just wait right by the door. When he opened it and he came in, I just, you know, whoops. I just, whoa. Yeah, I just, just went out. out. Yeah. That's I, you know, I never talked to him. I said, hi. Hi. Hi, Cal. How you doing? Good night. <laughs> <laughs> Boom. And I was off. And then I would unload my pockets, you know, back at the house. Yeah. I just remember one thing I did only twice. I was only there for three weeks because – um, twice, and the second time I thought too much. I would take, they had rashers of bacon. Rashers of bacon are these flat things where you just slice off, yeah. cut, or they were nice and flat. And I would just put it in my back, in my back, <laughs> right in my back. In my back. <laughs> nice and flat behind me, right in the back. And then so, and I put a couple of like, uh, whatever I would go in here. But the, but the rashers. So the second time I took a rasher of butt bacon, boom! I thought I got to make my move out of here. This is yeah, uh, you're gonna catch on. I'm leaving. I think it's there's empty spots starting to yeah. show up <laughs> in the in the cupboard. Yeah, especially <laughs> hey, what bacon. bacon? Yeah. <laughs> we sell a lot of bacon. <laughs> a lot of BLTs. What's going on? So, yeah. uh, so um, I stopped and that drove me to looking for other work. And I had a lot of time because I just worked two to six and Carl was always reviewing movies. He was writing, re reviewing movies now. So he was getting into it. He, he was focused, man. He was going to write Jaws, whether anybody liked it or not. Yeah. <laughs> for a couple of years. Yeah. So, so I started hanging out at a Monday night uh, open mic nights. Oh. And that's so there you go. And I was a funny guy in high school. I won funniest in high school two years in a row. So, you know, so I thought I can do that. Uh, not really. Because <laughs> making your high school friends laugh is not like standing on a stage and no. making strangers who's bought a drink yeah. So, but but here's the the great thing, and that that was my introduction to show business. From there, I just stayed that way and became a stand up comedian. And within six months, I had an um, a manager, and I was opening for Woody Allen. So, not it worked. Bad. yeah, yeah. So it worked. There's nothing. I don't think there's anything harder in, in, in that I can think of in show business, or or not even just in show business, than getting up on a stage and trying out new material in front of people that want to laugh. Uh, just tr that it's 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 scary just to think about getting up on stage and then having to constantly work out new material that might not be funny when you feed off of the jokes. I couldn't imagine having to come up with new material all the time and then having to get up on stage and bomb over and over and over to get better. <laughs> Bombing. <laughs> <laughs> ah, the memories. Oh, ah, the silence. Ah, the guys coming at me with beer bottles. Get the fuck off the stage. Eh? Yeah. 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 Um, well, you know, we all 
the thing about that, it's not all that way. First of all, I never wrote anything. I was a stand-up comedian. I was opening for um, I was opening for Miles Davis for yeah, for uh, the Kingston Trio for Rush, Eleven Spoonful, Blues Project. Uh, you know, just major, major acts, and I was the, you know, in arena shows, I was, but I never, ever wrote anything, ever. I had to write a joke. I mean, I didn't have enough focus to sit down and go, da-da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da. Yeah. Never had. So, but I, what I would do is I would get up and talk about my day. And uh, the interesting thing, this I learned at open mic night. They were the most important show business teachers I ever had. Open mic Monday nights, even for acting. The audience, I learned that, you know, I would just get up and talk. Because, you know, I thought it was funny. So there was not that, that nervousness. It was once I got out there, nobody was laughing. That's when I realized, wait a minute, I'm not funny? Whoa. But here's the thing, two ways. First of all, I would just get up and talk about my day. The, the great thing about open mic uh, Monday night audiences is they're not there because they want to laugh. You go to, you go to a, a, a leading comedian to do that. Hey, I'm going to go see Woody Allen. I'm going to laugh. I wouldn't laugh. I, didn't, I don't think he's funny, but, but he is <laughs> yeah. funny. I mean, to other people, he's really funny. Yeah. So, um, so what, what you do is the Monday night is you got no place else to go. Let's go in here. It's cheap and see if there's anything that can catch our fancy. In other words, you go in there, it's a risk, you know, it's a very cheap risk, cup of coffee. That's all. But here's the thing about audiences on open mic night and they all understand it. If you're not funny, that's okay. What if you came in here for, you know, one cup of coffee on open mic night and you expect to see Woody Allen or That's Richard Pryor? Point. What are great you kidding? Point. So they just sit silently and wait for the next act. Yeah. That's, That's all. They, you know, you're only on there for five, three to five minutes. You know, sometimes if there's a, a headliner funny guy, he gets 10 minutes, you know, maybe. You know, late at night. But, yeah. But no, three to five. So they just wait. You know, they'll just sit there like this. You Not know. And then if you're, and then, yeah, but, but that's Okay. Yeah, coming at you, you know, it's fine. Uh, and then if you do say something, they'll laugh. So I would just now, here's one of my talents that is it was weird. I have a photographic memory for not only laughter, but the line that got it. It's a photo, it just goes in and it's there. And I so if I talk to you for an hour on this is on stage, yeah, yeah, stage, yeah, if I talk to you for an hour. And I get five laughs. The next night, I forget the 60 to 57 minutes, you know, whatever. Yeah. And I remember the three jokes, the three lines. They weren't jokes because I was just talking. Yeah. But I remember what got me to the laugh. So I would just, my mind would, I wouldn't. I would just get up there and talk. The next night, I'd say the jokes that I remember from last night and continue on from there talking. Third night, remember the first night and the second night laughs, continue on there for talking. And by a week and a half, I'd have a 10-minute hunk, you know, of just all the laughs. Photographic memory had nothing to do with me or trying. And so I just wrote that. 
it's one of those weird quirks like you were talking about. Like you have a photographic memory. Um, the guy in your story had uh, there was the greatest pickpocket ever. You know. Yeah, yeah, quirks. yeah. Exactly. That's what I'm talking about. That's yeah. exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. So, so uh, I uh, by the time I got my manager, I had like about a five or ten minute hunk, and he started booking me around places, uh, clubs in Greenwich Village. It's still the, the same kind of people, you know. Uh, yeah. yeah. And then when I had about uh, tw 20 minutes, he goes, okay, because this was my manager who just said, hey, you want a manager? Yeah. How about me? Yeah. I mean, that was the entire conversation. He After I came off the stage one night at open mic night, he says, hey, you're pretty funny. Thank you very much. You got a manager? No. You want one? Yeah. How about me? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Here's my here's my card. Here's my name. So okay, I'll come back to you in a while and check. And uh, when you we'll go. Okay. Great. Goodbye. Now his card. Put it in my pocket. Didn't mention. Then he calls me. Says I egg for you. Okay. Boom. Uh, around the corner, it's a tuxedo. I don't have a tuxedo, man. I'm a hippie. <laughs> uh, um, so he says, oh, okay, I'll get you one. Don't worry about it. It's a, it's a, it's a, a nightclub you know, in, in a hotel. It's a, an upscale block. So, uh, uh, so, yeah, you're opening for a singer, for a nightclub singer. Okay, fine. So I do that. The guy buys me a tuxedo. Ooh. Not rents me one. He bought me a tuxedo. I blew my fucking mind. Who is this guy? And then I found out it's Woody Allen's manager. Because he said, hey, your next gig is with Woody. I go, how'd you do that? He says, well, I manage him too. You do? Wow. <laughs> wow. So I was opening for Woody, and that's what got me on then Miles Davis, then Kings yeah. and Trio, boom, 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 boom. But then I started to get into um, Richie Pryor, George Carlin, Lenny Bruce territory, because I'm just a learner. I don't just like level off. I just keep going. I mean, I just, it's curiosity, man. How, well, that, how, how, how long did you stay in, in Greenwich Village? How long were you there? I was there for a year. In other words, I, I graduated in 60. So I was there from 60 to 61, the six months curve open, and then, and then six months with, with, uh, with uh, Jack Rollins, uh, an opening for, for Woody in and wow. around New York. A and then I started to, you know, go Chicago and then, then touring. And it, uh, I was touring with uh, the Love and Spoonful. We did a whole wow. concert around the country, all the universities, pulled off the stage by police. Uh, 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 <clears throat> I got off the stage when a guy in a nightclub came at me with a bot. We don't want to hear that shit. I mean, you know, Lenny Bruce, Richie Pryor, George Carlin. Before George Carlin came out with the album, you know, the seven words you can't say. Yeah, this is back well, when he was really clean cut. Yeah, he was still working in a suit. I was still working in a suit. A lot uh, of people were back. A suit. You know, uh, after the, the tuxedo, I started, I had to wear a suit. So, uh, yeah, and then, um, and then it started getting hairy because I started to hang, started hanging around with some people who didn't give a rat's ass about what they were saying. 
I mean, they did because they were doing it for a purpose. Lenny knew what exactly what he was doing. Yeah. He knew exactly what he was in for. He just, they were, they, they were just cruel, man. I mean, I talked to him. I mean, I knew him. Um, you know, so uh, I called Jack finally from the road after the guy with the beer bottle uh, came at me. He said, get the fuck off the stage. I said, okay, fine. <laughs> I just walked off, man. Yeah. No, no problem. Yeah. No problem. You know, I, I was waiting for the bouncer or somebody. It's a nightclub, man. The guy's walking across a an empty dance floor at me with an upside down beer bottle in his hand and cursing at me saying, get the fuck off the stage. Look, Hey, how dare you curse at me? Only I can yeah. curse. I'm, I'm just, this is, a, <laughs> I'm a comedian. You're angry. <laughs> uh, so I told you, and I, I sat at the bar. I said, what are you doing here? Kingston Trio, Kingston Trio isn't coming on for 10 minutes. I go, did you see that guy with a beer bottle, man? He nearly cracked me open, my head open. He said, yeah, yeah. Well, he sat down. Go get out, get back out there. I said, no, he's going to do it again, man. I, I, I don't have another act. This is what I do, man. So he said, well, you're not going to get paid. You're going to be fired. I said, okay. He says, goodbye. I said, goodbye. And I walked out. You know, wow. that's it. And I, but I, I came, I had to come back. It was just, it was snowing outside. It was this blizzard. And I had to come back in, you know, fuck you. Boom, 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 boom. You know, I, I used your phone. <laughs> I had to call a cab to get to the airport. But I called my manager, Jack. I said, I can't do this anymore. He goes, why? I said, I'm a middle-class kid, you know. I'm doing, you know, Lenny and, and Richie and George. But, you know, I'm not doing drugs yet. They're pulling me off the stage <laughs> for just cursing. I'm not doing drugs <laughs> yet. This is like next year. I, that was <laughs> – but so I, I really took on Richie because the cops I, – I swear to God, because they I, I wasn't on drugs. Drugs. I, you know, I didn't understand that you couldn't say penis or fuck on stage. You, God, it was verboten. I, I don't even understand like that concept anymore. Where we're at nowadays, it's just it's so amazing how fast we switched from a society where that was like, as you say, not allowed, to a society where you could, it, every two seconds on the internet somebody's saying it or or you yeah. know from a dead lenny bruce to frontal nudity on hbo yes yeah, that's where we've come from yeah and uh you know so anyway uh yeah so uh, when he said i said i can't do this anymore man i just i i i i, I was doing it for fun you know i wasn't writing i was still because it, here's the thing i discovered the audience, and now I'm opening for like Miles Davis, and but I'm still doing the same thing. The first two minutes I talk about my day. Doesn't matter. Oh, and here's the other thing. And um, the cellar door, which was uh, the very hip boitier in Washington, D.C., where all the, all the politicians and even some presidents go to that nightclub. And Miles Davis was playing D.C., the cellar door, and they called me and they said, hey, Miles Davis has been booked in. We don't have an opening act, but President Kennedy, uh, President Kennedy has bought a ticket where he wants to come. So how would you like to open for Miles? I go, great. That's really great. So I'm opening for Miles. It was a two-week show. I didn't know when anybody was coming. I just, two weeks with Miles was enough for me. So I'm opening for Miles, and 
I, I did, there's one thing where I do in, in, in the act. I mean, it's not funny now. I'm not going to do it. But yeah. one of the sound effects was I, I was talking about mo motorcycle cops and parking enforcement cops in New York City. They were riding uh, Lambretta motor scooters, the parking enforcement cops yeah, in New yeah. York. So they would stop their Lambrettas, get off, write a ticket. So that was the sound effect. <laughs> So I said, you know, so I said that motorcycle that, that Hell's Angels were were New York City uh, parking enforcement officers that made it. You know, they went from <laughs> to bam, bam. You know, so uh, one night after the show, um, I see a group of people. Everybody clears out of the nightclub, and there was a tear. So like five steps up and you can sit and you can have dinner up there and you look down and everybody else was in like, it's a little five step tier thing. So everybody leaves the, the, the nightclub, the, the, the show is over. I, I open Miles Davis plays, everybody clears, except there's a little confab of about 10 to 15 people in the middle of the nightclub. They're all hanging together. And then Miles comes out. I was, I was, I sat on the steps, kind of in the shadow, wondering what's going on. There's something going on. Maybe, maybe that's the president. I don't know. But I want to see. And then Miles comes out, and sure enough, it's the president. It's President Kennedy, his brother, his wife, and uh, all the, you know, the, the, the guards, you know, the yeah. three Secret people around him. And, uh, uh, yeah, Secret Service. And uh, one or two senators. I remember their names, but not now, anyway. And they're talking to him. So he goes into the center talking around him. So he's in the center. And I'm just sitting there on the stage in the shadow. Yeah, it's way kind of, kind of lit. But in the shadow. And I'm just going, wow, that is so cool. That's what I was thinking. How cool that is. How cool Miles Davis is. The president of the United States, man, hangs around to talk to Miles Davis. Wow. And I'm good. And at one point... I see Miles, you know, go up like this, and he sees me, goes back down, he's talking for a little while, and then he comes back up again, he goes. <laughs> That's pretty cool. You can't get hipper than that while you're talking to President Kennedy. You know, just a second, Prez. I've got a buddy over here. I got to razz him. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Now what were you saying? <laughs> what were you about? <laughs> doesn't get much cooler than Miles Davis. And then uh, when no, Miles Davis something like he that. Wanted me to, he wanted me to tour with him, but I said no, because I was afraid to go to Europe. I thought I'd die there. Yeah, I was very naive still. I yeah, thought, yeah. I know, stick in America. Stick to America. So yeah. then let me ask you, where do, how did the transition happen to, to acting? When did that, when did that start? I mean, well, we went to, uh, you know, um, let me see how did, oh, well, when he told me, when Jack Rollins, when I called him and I said, no, yeah, I can't do this. I'm a middle-class Jewish kid, you know, and cops are pulling me off the stage. What do my parents think? Yeah. You know, so I, he said, well, well, why don't you join Second City? They're doing the same thing as Lenny and Richie and, and, and Carl, uh, uh, George, George Carlin. Why don't you join Second City? They're doing the same material. Except they own the theater. So if anybody comes at you with a beer bottle, the stage is way up high. And you got five other people on the stage. And they'll throw him out because they own the theater. So that's what I did. 
And I loved, see, I like being on a stage and yeah. talking to people, stand up, improv. You're still making up your own material. You're not reading somebody else's words. Um, so <clears throat> I, I, I loved it. I, I, I got, I got on with uh, Robin Williams. Oh yeah. I went with Robin. Um, yeah, we got to know each other later, years and years later. But, but then we were just two people online. Except I knew that was Robin Williams because years later he was wearing the white suspenders with the yeah. rainbows, and that's what he was wearing the night he auditioned. The, wow. the white uh, uh, bib bib overalls and the rainbow suspenders. Yep. So I, years later, oh, that was that was Robin. Yeah. So uh, I was standing right behind him, and I remember. Uh, I hope this is why I got the audition. I don't know. So here's a, another little talent that I. I, I, I fostered in practice. You take a cigarette, you know, you know like a cigarette. Now, this is a yep. cigarette, okay? And you put it like this in your hand, uh -huh. like that, and you flip it, yep. right? Okay. So uh, we're standing on line, the long line audition for a second city. And somebody says, hey, Paul Sills is coming out. He's the director of Second City. He's in you know, the, the audition room there. And somebody says, Paul, Paul Sills is going is, is to come out. Okay. Paul Sills is going to come So the door opens and he says, that's Paul Sills. So here comes Paul Sills and he's walking. And I said, really? And there's a long line. I had enough time to ask somebody for a cigarette. I said, anybody got a cigarette? Anybody got a cigarette? He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I take the thing, put the cigarette in my hand like this. And I think, think I'm thinking. I'm going to flip the cigarette up and catch it in my mouth as he's walking by to impress him, you know? So here he comes, here he comes, here he comes, here he comes. Got it. And he looks at me and he goes, <laughs> okay, cool. I go in, I audition. He's not in the audition. He went that way. He never came back. <laughs> I go in. I auditioned for a guy named Alan Meyerson. Okay. Two days later, I get a call. Um, you got a call back from Second City. You got to go to this address. I go to this address. It's a business. It's, a, it's, a, it's an office building. It's an office building. It's nothing to do with the theater. And one of the offices, and it's on Saturday, the building is closed, except I'm, I'm allowed in. They got my name downstairs. Go up six, the sixth floor. I go, there's an office, empty. Nobody's there. It's Saturday. And go to this one particular office. It's an office, an executive's office. And there's Paul Sills sitting behind the desk. And he says, hi, Larry. Uh, you know, welcome to the audition. And I go, oh, okay. So now I'm, I'm totally thrown off. I'm in a building. I'm in an office. There's no, not other auditioning people. There's nobody waiting. It's just me and him. I don't know what's going on. It's different than any audition I've ever done. So he goes, um, okay, so listen, the first thing, and this is great directors have said the greatest things to me. They always, they not one has ever missed. Maybe they'll only say one thing in the entire time I know them. And this is the great thing he says to me. Uh, so I said, oh, hi. He says, uh, Larry Hankin, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So look, Larry, the first thing is, don't try to make me laugh, please. You know, everybody comes in here, tries to make me laugh. I'm sick of laughing, you know? I run a comedy show. 
I don't need to laugh anymore. No more laughter. So just do what I say, okay? And he's got that attitude. I go, wow, you know, I'm, I'm, now I'm thrown. I'm here to make you laugh. There's a second city. I'm a comedian. So the first thing he does is no laughing. <laughs> so I'm standing there naked now. He says, all right, so uh, there's a key in this room. Find it. That's it? Yeah. Okay. And don't make me laugh, please. And so I start looking for a key, you know, looking, looking for the key. At some point, he goes, okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, yeah, so, no, no, that's it, that's it, thank you. Okay, bye. And that was it. Three days later, I get a call. Okay, you got it. You're going, you know, you're, you're, you're in. You're going, you're, you're shipping out to St. Louis, you know, Tuesday. So pack your bags and get ready. What was the point uh, of, of that, of that uh, having you look for a key? Did you ever figure that out? Like, what was the point of that? Well, no, but I, I kind of sussed it out after I learned how to improvise. I mean, they say send you to school. I mean, you know, I mean before I went to St. Louis, I had to go to classes yeah. for about a month, I think. And there were some heavy-duty people there. You know. uh, but uh, well, well, what that was, um, he wanted to see how honest and how there's a lot of things was going on. He wanted to see how honest I could be. He wanted to see how real I could be. He wanted to see if I could follow directions. He wanted to see uh, if I could focus on a simple task. Um, he wanted us to see my body language. That that's wow. That's a great. I've never heard anything like that. That makes a lot of sense. Makes perfect sense. Yeah, and I was great at it. At, at improvising. Yeah. That was, that's my talent. That's and my that's talent. what a lot of actors do is they improvise. I mean, that's well, kind of... Yeah, but I can't improvise acting. Oh, really? Improvise, improvise, yeah. Well, okay, then that. let me ask you this. As an actor, would you rather have a director come and tell you, just do it like the lines say, or would you rather have an actor or a director say... Uh, you can throw a little bit of your your pizzazz in there. What what as an actor for you? What is the the important or the the takeaway? Okay, here's the here's the takeaway, and this is what I mean about directors saying just such incredibly great things to me, even if it's only like you know one word at the right time for the right reason could be an amazing epiphany, an actor's epiphany. I'll give you an example, uh, Larry David. Now, all I've worked with, the great actors I've worked with all, all off the top of my head are John Huston, Larry David, uh, uh, Don Siegel are the three big, big ones. The Escape from Alcatraz. Yeah. Don Siegel is an amazing, was, he's passed on. Yeah. An amazing director. Who, and I'm a big fan of John Huston, too, so. Yeah. Uh, so, Okay. Larry David, I, I did a, a, a Tom Pepper in, in Seinfeld. I was the guy who stole the razor. I love that, okay. yeah. So what was in my mind from the second I got the sides, the, 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 the script, uh, was, okay, just from reading it, I came to the conclusion uh, Tom Pepper was passive aggressive, that he was so angry that he either kept it in and was 
or he just, you know, uh, or, or any other dried fruit, you know, <laughs> or any other dried fruit. So I thought Buster Keaton would be great at the passive aggressive. Totally blank, you know. Great and stone face. Yeah. Great stone face. So that's what I was going for. Great stone face would make what Tom Pepper was saying that Larry David had written very funny, funnier. That, that was my decision. So I'm doing that. Larry David doesn't direct. He just stands and watches. And every once in a while, he'll give a direction, say something. I don't know what he does. He, he says something to one of his stars. You know, Seinfeld or Costanza or Kramer or the girl, the girl I've got. Julia Lewis. Her name, Elaine. Yeah, so Elaine. He, um, he would go over to them and he'd go, um, and then they would say, and for some reason, they'd be funnier. I mean, Larry David knows what's funny. So yeah. he would just, I don't think, hey, man, I'm a funny guy. I mean, you hired me for this part. I mean, why aren't you giving me all of this, you know, biggish, <laughs> this good stuff, you know? Well, so so one, one afternoon, he comes over to me. Uh, he says to Tom, the director, he says, uh, just uh, hold it for a second. I want to talk to Larry. He's going to, oh, he's going to give me some good stuff. So he says, uh, come here, Larry. So he pulls me, he does that, he does that. He pulls you aside. I love directors who pull you aside. And, you know, doesn't do it in front of everybody. Pulls me aside, he said, um, and he gets this attitude and he comes right up in my face and he goes, I know what you're trying to do. And the key word there was trying. And that really stuck in my craw. You know, and I'm thinking, what the fuck do you mean I'm trying? I'm a professional. I'm either doing it or I'm not, and I'm doing it. So, you know, that's what I gave him back. I said, oh, really? And what am I trying to do? Mr. Know-it-all. Yeah. Well, what am I trying to do? And he just, what I'm, what I'm thinking, you know, he just goes, you're trying to do nothing. And he walks away. And I thought, fuck, man, that's the best piece of direction I've ever got. He pinned me. He pinned me. See, I was ready to argue with him. You know, I want to do it this way. But that's exactly what I was trying to do. And he said, you're doing something. And he walked away. So he knew I, and I go, wow, man. Okay. Buster Keaton, a little more, you know, stone face right on. Thank you. Thank you, Larry. So he goes, okay. So we, we do it again. He starts walking towards me. And I go, oh, man, come on. I, I, I was stone-faced. I was stone-faced. But I see he's walking too fast. He's not going to talk to me. He's going to talk to somebody behind me. But he walks right by me. He brushes by me. And as he walks by me, brushes by me, he says in a whisper, you're still doing something. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's a great director. That, that's a great director. He pins you, and he doesn't give you direction. He helps you get to where you want to go. And here's what John Houston told me, which dovetails beautifully. John Houston told me this first. John Houston said, uh, we were just talking about stuff. You know, I, I mean, I think I broached the conversation because I wanted to say something. I wanted to talk to John Houston. So I thought I broached the conversation by saying, Hey, you know, have you ever heard of a, of a movie called The Maltese Falcon? <laughs> so he goes, he smiled and he goes, I've heard of it. Yeah. I said, you directed it. 
Yeah. You know, I say, you know, if you wanted to do that movie today, you couldn't get that made. Really? I go, yeah, because I was just, you know, pushing him. I wanted to say if he has a sense of humor in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I go, yeah, because he says, what, why is that? I said, because all it is is speeches about this long in room after room after room. And he goes, probably wouldn't get it made today. <laughs> but but here's the thing. And that's another I mean, just and that's all he said. He doesn't have he said a lot of things to me in the, in the audition. I think here's what here's the the greatest. This is the great directors are really great for a reason, and it's nothing that you've ever seen. It's the their their presence and what you and what they're doing in person. That's what makes them great. When I audition, here's my habit. My habit is, after I got to be an actor for a while, you get to know certain things, the stations of the cross you got to do before you do your job. And that is, first thing I do is I don't go to my dressing room. I go to the costume department. And I say, I'm Larry Hank, and I'm doing the role of, uh, so, so I'm the old Joe, I'm doing the role of, uh, what was it, the dog catcher. Mm-hmm. Doing the, 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 and and uh, Annie, John Houston. Uh, so I, where's the costume? The costume department is right over there. So I go in and I ask. I said, I'm Larry Hagen. I'm doing old Joe. Can I see my costume? Yeah, sure. It's over there. They're all in hangers, whatever your changes are. So you go in and I'm going through it. It's one of two things. Oh, so then some guy comes up to me. I can't, I can't find it. I don't know where, where uh, the, the door catcher's stuff is. A man comes up to me. He goes, oh, what are you doing here? I said, oh, I'm Larry Hankin. I'm the dog catcher. I, I asked, and I, they said I could look at my costume, look up at my costume. He says, you're not supposed to be here. I said, yeah, but, you know, I just want to check my costume. He goes, okay, okay. I got it. So he turns around, looks at me, and he comes, and he gives me, it looked like, at first it looked like, you know those, those folded boxes, uh, you know, where you can open them up and fold them, and you make a box, and then you put your clothes in, you know, yeah, the, yeah. Moving, the moving thing. Okay, it was a little box, a little box about 15 square inches. Looked like a cardboard box. Okay, that color and about that thickness. Yeah. But it's, but it's costume. It's a, a folded up, washed and starched and folded into a 15 square uh, form of a... Uh, you know what 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 um, car mechanics wear the coveralls? Yeah, yeah, the cover- coveralls. You know the blue things that the yeah. guys with garage come out. Okay, well it's tan because it's a dog catcher, but it's coveralls. You just put it over. Okay. So I said, "What is this?" He says, "That's your coveralls for the dog catcher." So it's a it looks like a flat box, man, and and I I pull up one edge. It's a sleeve, and it's. Totally starched, man. Yeah, it doesn't look like yeah. it's been used. No, it's it's just stiff. But I peeled it up, and I remember my father when I was a little kid. He used to let me peel his white starch shirts open because I love to go. You know, I love that thing. And then you stick your hand in the sleeve, and it you know it squeeches. You know, he's. I love that feeling. So he, it's, it's that hard. 
So I said, I can't wear this. He goes, why not? I said, it's starched. It's clean. I'm a dog catcher. It's 1930. I'm in, you know, South New York. You know, I'm in lower Manhattan. I mean, a dog, I'm carrying dog. It's filthy. I'm not wearing this. Number one thing of actors, protect your character. Ooh, great protect point. Protect your character. To you, your character is right to your character. Yeah. He's doing the right thing. Even if you're a murderer, he thinks he's got to do this. It's the right thing. Not wearing this. You have to wear this. I'm not. It's not clean. It's not dirty. It's not a dog catcher's outfit. I'm not wearing this. He says, you better wear that. I go, no, I'm, I'm not. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. You don't understand. He says, you know, if you don't wear this, uh, I have to go to uh, Houston. Let's go. Let's go. And, and I have nothing to do with the John Houston being famous or anything. Yeah. I was angry at this guy, and I'm protecting my character. This is a no-go. All right, let's go. Let's go, man. He's let's go, you know. He flatter. He takes it, and he's carrying it like, like it was a, a tiara or something. <laughs> and we're going out. But it rained the night before. It's a sunny day. Street's starting to... Uh, dry out, but there's various puddles around, and he's shooting Annie, Mr. Director, Mr. Houston, is shooting outdoors, right outside of where we are. We go out there, and there he is, and he's watching the day's rushes, John Houston, the great John Houston. And he goes, and he, and he hears people coming, he turns slowly, and he goes, oh, hi, you know, Carl, or whatever his name is. Hi, Carl. Hi, Larry. What's going on? He's oh, I'm very, oh, he remembers my name. I, I only met him during the audition. Hi, Larry. Yeah, what's going on? Uh, Mr. Houston, uh, <clears throat> we called him Mr. Houston. Mr. Houston, um, this actor will not put on this costume. Uh, and he looks at me, he goes, uh, why is that, Larry? Why don't you wear the costume? I go, well, because it's, look at it, it starts, it's clean, I'm a dog catcher, you know, I, I, I wouldn't be wearing that, it, you know, I, I'm not wearing it, you know, no, I'm complaining to him, but I'm not in his face, it's John Houston, you know. Yeah. So he goes uh, to Carl, Carl, would you give me that, please? Carl hands him a thing. John Houston gets up. And he walks over to the nearest, biggest puddle he can find, walks into the middle of it with his shoes on, walks into the middle of the puddle, and he opens the thing. <laughs> Boom. Drops it in a puddle and walks on it, walks all over it. Then he picks it up, dripping wet, holds it out like this. And he goes over to Carl and he says, Carl. Dry this off and put it on this actor. Thank you, Larry. Thank you, Carl. And he goes back to his TV set. Now, that's cool, man. Yeah, he fixed that's the problem. Cool director. That's, yeah, no no fuss, no bother, solve the problem, next, next problem. You know, great, act, great directors are great. That's, that's one of my high points of my fucking life. Amen. I, 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 that's when, you know, you talking about John Houston, like instantly takes me back. I, I grew up watching old movies. One of my all time favorite movies is a treasure Sierra Madre. Yeah. I think, 
I think the Treasure of Sierra Madre is one of the greatest acted movies. Uh, oh yeah, man! <laughs> and, and I couldn't imagine, you know, being on set with guys like John Houston. You know, <laughs> yeah, there it is. Yeah, that dance, man. Yeah, you, you can't write that shit. No. And and I love the story of that movie, how it was a love letter to his father and he wanted to give his father one last acting thing and and all that type and of stuff. And he got the Academy Award, man, <laughs> for his dad as a gift. Uh, yeah, well, she'll last, you know, uh, let's just do it, man. Yeah. Boom. And he got his daughter an Academy Award, too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, well, let's, let's on, talk by about the way. I wore the costume John Houston stepped in a puddle on. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's pretty amazing, man. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about uh, your one of your latest things, and that was the the Breaking Bad stuff and and uh, El Camino and 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 all the cool stuff that that has gone with with that series. That series has kind of, in my opinion, uh, changed uh uh, TV w- when that series came out. I don't think a lot of people were ready for that show, obviously, and, and how well it did. Um, but then to go and do the movie after afterwards was genius, in my opinion. What was it like working um, on that on that on that film and, and everything to do with with that whole uh, um, John not genre, but uh, the whole Breaking Bad? Everything. I was a fan of Breaking Bad. I was also, I, I, I'm not a fan. I mean, I, I, I look up to certain people, you know, as a model or as a, maybe a mentor. But I shy away from being a fan because I have fans and a lot of them, <clears throat> not all of them, but, but a lot of them uh, express um, uh, an over-the-top emotion that is just not real. <laughs> and so I don't want to get caught up in that. So I, I see it in front of me and I go, okay, that's one of the dangers of being a fan. I don't think it's a good thing. So I, I try not to do that. So um, I've only been a fan of two, two, two things, two, two television things, not even a fan of movies. Well, yes, I'm a fan of one movie and two television things. Breaking Bad, I'm a fan of. I was a fan of. Uh, and uh, I don't know if you ever heard of a series uh, called Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. No. Okay. I was a fan of that. I would leave parties to go see Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. This one that is in the 70s, in the 60s, maybe. Uh, that. Okay. And then uh, Breaking Bad, and the only movie is Man Bites Dog. Is, uh, a, do you know that movie? I, I've heard German of that movie. It's a German student film. It's, it's in, in German, and... Uh, there's a transcription at the bottom. It's a film about three guys, serial murderer and two documentary filmmakers who want to follow us around. And that is an amazing piece of cinema, uh, of cinema period. Yeah. And I'm talking about Lawrence of Arabia all the way on down. I love French uh, I love that that uh, time period. Line from space or whatever. Say that again. I'm sorry. I love that time period of French film too. Um, oh it, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. The new wave. The new wave. Yes. Oh man. Oh man. I, 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 that's all I watch. I didn't watch American movies. That's all I watch is new wave. French. Great. Yeah. 
Okay, so um, so okay, so what was I? I, I oh yeah, going, Breaking Bad. So so Breaking Bad. So that's how much I, I loved it. So when I was on the set, how was it like? I was not on any drugs or anything. I don't even think I ate food for the entire time I worked on all of those things. I was high the entire time. It was such a great feeling. It was like a graduation. It was, this is what I was in show business to be part of. That I I, all that. the learning I did, all the learning I did. It was such a pleasure to be around, well, Vince Gilligan. Vince Gilligan is up there with some of the greats, man. He's because he's so contemporary. You know, John Houston made his bones way before I ever was on this planet. But Vince Gilligan is part of my life. You know, I mean, he yeah. he, he was he wrote. I watched all the stuff that he wrote before he was Vince Gilligan. I was just a fan of, you know, I was watching those things. And then when he started Breaking Bad, I caught up on the second year. I didn't watch the first year at all. But once I watched the second year, I went all the way back and I watched everything. I would leave parties to go watch Breaking Bad, you know. So uh, it was just wonderful. And he was a great director. I have dyslexia. So he would write long speeches for me, which I couldn't remember. I mean, <laughs> I, I just can't. Yeah. I, 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 it's, it's really hard. Uh, so what he would do instead of hollering at me or, or making me, you know, or making me feel like, hey, man, come on, you know, remember those lines. Uh, he would just uh, take a break. He would oh. just say, take a break. Hey, work on it, Larry. And I would work on it. And then he'd come back and he'd say, uh, he'd say 10 minutes. He'd say, I work on it. Larry. Can, uh, let's take 10 minutes, you know, and I want to talk to the cinematographers. And he'd use the time. I mean, he wouldn't just sit around. I mean, yeah. he'd have things to do. So he would go, I'd take him. And he would give me, he, he would even give me uh, his uh, shot book, you know, his, uh, and it was, it's a, because uh, I was really in, I don't, I don't hang around other actors. I hang around the directors. Yeah. Just, they, they just know so much. Yeah. <laughs> I have the good, good ones. My best friend uh, is a, is an actor, and one of his uh, lines that he always tells to me is, is that he likes saying to me is, there's nothing better than being on a set and watching the crew and everybody interact and, and how a movie is made. And exactly. to be able, yeah, to talk to everybody on the set is just amazing. Um, and when you're there, you just soak it all up. And uh, I, I think that's a, a perfect example of what you're talking about. You know, like not yeah. not being on a drug, but just being high because you're there, and you're. Yeah, I mean, he, noticed, he notices that. See, and that's the other thing. I do that always. I'm, I'm always near the camera, or 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 near a TV village. Like I'm, I want to watch the shot. I want I want to see how the you know what lens are they using. Yeah. You know, I never I, right right. But he noticed that because he came over to me one day, Vince did, and he said, uh, hey, how would you like to see my shot book? And I go, yeah, I'd love to see the shot. So he you know, calls his assistant. He has to say, He's, give Larry the, the shot book. So it's, a, it's about that thick. It's a, you know, a, a yeah. notebook. But he has drawings of every shot the picture, where the cameras are, the angles, you know, where the movements go, and then uh, notations as to what he wants the, the scene to be and where the actor should be, what the point of the scene is. Just so much information, just like 
like Encyclopedia Britannica. And there's some, there's some shots and ways that that show did things that I still watch today. And I go, I can't believe I'm watching this. Some of the, the camera shots that they have in that show. Yeah. I mean, they're known for some of those crazy camera shots, you know, like, you know, the cameras is in, in the back of a washer and dryer, or, you know, uh, <laughs> the fridge they're in the trunk of a car. They're in the trunk no, of a car. Yeah. yeah. The machine gun is going. Yeah. It's a, he, that, that was, that's really interesting. You bring that up because that's one of the things that I kept talking to people about, about where he puts the camera. Jeez. And then I started to, you know, when I was going through the book, I was trying to see, uh, he, he's got that in his mind way. I think he has that in his mind when he's writing it, where the camera, I think oh, he writes yeah. from where the camera is. I love that. Watching. Because when I was looking through the book, all the camera shots that I was seeing when I was watching the TV, he had it already written down in the book way before they started filming. So I'm sure when he was writing half of these shots, I know that. I do that sometimes. Maybe it's because of what I picked up from him, but it's much better when you write from a camera angle or from, yeah. a, or from a character's angle, yeah. but not just from a writer's angle. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's, 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 amazing. it's amazing what a good director can do. It's amazing what a good writer can do. I always say that um, if, if it's written well, uh, it, that's key number one, right? If it's written yeah, well. Yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, but, but he's a great writer. Yeah, the director can tell his story in a certain way that just makes it so much better, and and it's it's amazing what they can do nowadays, especially um, with 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 some of the technology and stuff, which blows me away. How guys like you know Houston and, and some of those old school guys, you know Hitchcock and those guys would do would would make films, and it would take years. When these guys are putting out films now that take you know a month or something oh, like yeah. that, um, yeah. but. Another crazy thing that that I love is, you know, you were on uh, episodes of Malcolm in the Middle, and and you worked with Brian Cranston on that uh, on Malcolm in the Middle. Did I mean, did you ever think that uh, uh, Brian Cranston would would become the actor that he's become? I mean, I never thought of him as being a serious actor because he was always doing the comedic type stuff. I don't think he knew he was going to become Brian Cranston either at that time. I mean, when I was uh, acting with him, uh, he was a sitcom dad and I yeah. was uh, a young actor. Yeah. That's all we were. Yep. Uh, I think he, you know, maybe he had eyes to be something bigger than what he was, but he was a sitcom dad. I mean, that's what happened. That's what happens to all actors all male actors and, and, and female actors become sitcom moms. Once, once you pass a certain age, your go-to job is sitcom dad, sitcom mom. That's a great and, point. Uh, the, the reason that I was doing, uh, I played a, a homeless guy in that. And mm -hmm. I played many, many homeless guys after that. Because right around that time, I discovered what I just told you that when I become 35 or 40 as a male actor, I'm going to become Brian Cranston in uh, well, what's the name of that the show? Malcolm uh, in the middle. Malcolm yeah. in the middle. And I, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. And so I started to think uh, uh, when I was around 30 or 28, I started to think about forming a character 
And that's why I started doing homeless guys with long hair and my hair started to turn gray. I thought, at least I could do a homeless guy. They just don't want to do a, a sitcom dad, homeless guy you can play. I mean, Charlie Chaplin was the most famous homeless man ever to live. Yep. And the, the most famous, famous actor. actor in the planet. Yep. So, you know, people put that, my friends would say, why are you doing homeless guy, man? I say, well, you know, Charlie Chaplin, what are you talking about, man? Yeah. One of the most famous actors in history was a fucking homeless character. I just get so PO'd. Some people that, you know, oh, so anybody who tells you what you should do. I think yes. should and can't are not words that should be in anybody's lexicon. I don't care. Just no well, should, no can't. Well, you, you as a, your profession and being an actor, you know, now that I think about it, uh, asking that question about Brian Cranston, it's kind of stupid because as, as your profession, as an actor, uh, you know, you guys are proving that every day that you can be whatever you want and still be whatever you want. I mean, it's all in your own head. Yep. 90% of it is in your, yeah, 10% is chance and other people. Other people are hell, but it's only 10%. Um, so, yeah, it's mainly on, on, on your own shoulders. It's on my shoulders. It's well, on Brian Cranston's shoulders, you know. You, you talked about earlier about uh, Escape from Alcatraz. Um, and, Great and, movie. Great yeah. movie. Yeah, and uh, you know you played Charlie Butts in that, and, and and you worked with Clint Eastwood. What was it like working on that on that film? It was great uh, for other reasons, for different reasons. It was great working with um, Clint Eastwood because uh, Clint Eastwood is a, is a really a fine actor. And if you'll notice in any of the films that he later directed, that he was in, it's very hard to direct yourself. But he was learning on Escape from Alcatraz from Don Siegel, the director of Escape from Alcatraz. He was learning uh, how to direct while he was acting in that movie. There's one scene where, uh, where um, because after each shot, they would, before the shot, they would talk about um, what the scene was about. They would, they would they were always talking before a scene. And then generally they were talking about what the scene was going to be about. and That was all. Afterwards, they would talk about directing it, the scene. Like, how did you, where did you put the camera? And why did you put it there? And blah, blah, blah. And what do you do? Ha, ha. So it would book it. But they were always talking about either the scene or directing. And then one, one scene, there's a scene where there's a doctor. There's a scene in a doctor's office where there's a doctor discussing or examining another patient while I think, I don't remember exactly, Clint Eastwood, no, Clint Eastwood is not in the scene. There's a doctor examining a patient. And maybe that's all. Maybe they're just talking. Clint Eastwood directed that scene and Don Siegel, the director, is the doctor in that scene. And the reason is Clint wanted to direct one scene in the movie just to get his chops, just to get his chops about acting because he was learning from Don Siegel. And Don Siegel says, okay, here's a small scene. I'll let you direct that because this was a big movie for Don Siegel. So he didn't want to let anybody, you know, fuck yeah. it up. 
So he said, there's a small scene. I'll let you direct that one, but I'm going to be in it so I can watch what you're doing. I, I, uh, <laughs> I'm not going to not be there. Yeah. And he always wanted to be in, in a scene anyway. So instead of standing off to the side, he demanded to be in the scene so he could be an actor. So that, that scene is Clint Eastwood directing Don Siegel. Wow. And then afterwards they, because I was there, I just, I, I wanted to watch that, you know, see what happened. And yeah. afterwards they, they talked about it, you know, they said, well, you know, it's pretty good. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't remember. Mm -hmm. I, I just, so, but, but hanging around, I, I didn't hang around much with Clint, although I saw that he, he never, it was him and me never went into our dressing rooms. I always wanted to be on the set. I was always hanging around uh, Don Siegel and he, was always doing weights. He brought weights. He's a pumping iron, you know, uh, 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 dumbbells. Isn't that what they're called? Dumbbells. Yeah, yeah. He brought these really heavy ones. I think about 50 pounds each, 45 or 50 pounds each. And he would just leave them next to the camera. And he would do it. He would pump himself up, you know, a little before the scene. He'd put it down, walk around, shake out. And he'd wow. do the scene. And then he'd come back and pick up the things and kind of, I don't know, bring himself down or keep him, keep his blood up, whatever. And then during lunch, he'd eat with the, uh, with the, with the cast and crew, mainly with the cast, the 200 extras that were the, the, the convicts. He would eat with them. Uh, they, he, the, and the, the other, the warden, the, the guy, the, I was the other star, the warden, uh, he was, uh, he, he was drunk all the time. He was drunk the entire movie. <laughs> <laughs> he never came out of his dress room except to do his part. He smelled the liquor. He was a little woozy. He never answered, but yeah, yeah. You ready to go? <laughs> yep, yeah, ready to go. Just snap. And then, but he would never miss the line. He never, you know, professional. Totally professional. Uh, and uh, I asked Clint Eastwood, you know, what does he do? Because he never comes out. He said, yeah, do you ever speak to him? I asked Clint. Do you ever speak to him? Because no, he just he just stays in his dressing room until it's time to come out. I think one time he came out a little too soon. So he had to wait maybe, you know, three or four minutes while they still set it up. And that was the longest I've ever seen him out, you know. But his eyes were red and, you know, <laughs> out and his nose is red. But here's the thing. And I thought, you know, how can a fucking guy act like that? I mean, I can't act high. I know I can't do anything with anything. I mean, yeah, no, it just doesn't work. I just so it blew my mind. But right the fuck on. But when I saw the movie, I think he really knew what he was doing. The 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 the, the, the warden, warden, the actor knew what he was doing because. That tasty face of a drunk, but he didn't show it. He didn't look drunk on uh, in in the movie. Doesn't look drunk, but he looks distant. There's that that you know the dead don't eyes care. of somebody yeah. who's going to kill you, but you no don't empathy. care. You know? Yeah, you know no empathy. And I think it worked for him. And I think that's why nobody. I mean, Don. It was obvious. Everybody knew he was fucking drinking and he was drunk. Uh, but that's why I think Clint never spoke to him or the director never said anything. Nobody ever said anything about it. You know, not me.
But I, I mean, I was very aware of it. I was there three months, man. So, uh, you know, I watched him every day. And so I know you, know, you can't complain about anything. There's a ton of other things that I can get into with you. And, and, and uh, you know, you've talked a lot about friends in the past. And, and, and I don't want to get into the friend stuff because you've talked a lot about that. And, but there's been some other things uh, beyond the world of TV and movies that you've also uh, written and directed several projects, um, even receiving an Oscar nod for one of your short films. It's pretty awesome, man. That's pretty yeah. damn cool. Yeah, I see it in the background there. Uh, no, by the way, right, just, just for the, the now that I'm pointing. Yeah, there it is. The, oh, the, uh, that's my that's my painting, and that's my painting, and you can go see them all, forty four of them, on therealarryhankin.com, and they're going to be T-shirts pretty soon. I so go to. I, I was just at your site uh, uh, the other day looking at those, and you're oh, cool. you're you're like a, a renaissance man. You you you, you, do, you do the acting, you do the art, you do the the the, the stage work. I mean, you're doing it all out there. Like as my mom would say, "You're so talented, Larry." <laughs> <laughs> what uh, what is what does the future have for you? Well, I just finished a, a, a screenplay for myself. Uh, it's just pretty cool. I like it. I, I just finished it like three days. Uh, actually, I finished it last night. Wow. But finally, I mean, the first, you know, the, the first yeah, yeah. Uh, draft. Thing ended out. And then, but the first draft, the first draft. Uh, it's called uh, Darcy and the Vampire. And it's, it's really cool. It's a cruel, it's kind of a, a date night funny vampire movie <laughs> but but the, the thing about it is i mean there's a lot of funny vampire movies there's been a lot of funny vampire movies but well I, I'm, I'm trying to get in the center of this and i can't i don't know okay uh, but there's a lot of vampires but this i i guarantee you there's no vampire like this one i i i i, I want to play the vampire i i wrote it for me it's uh it's it's pretty cool but there's no vampire like this vampire i mean he's a vampire yeah. but but well, he, I'm loving to hear it. I love to hear when people create and they're excited about what they create. Yeah. Um, that's that's my favorite thing is to. And then I'm going to do a one man show after that. I'm going to I'm going to talk well, about what we what we talked about in the beginning about my life in show business. My I was, life I'm, and in show business. I'm glad you brought that up because that's what I was going to say. I was going to say, man, you have uh, more books in you. You have more Stop. screenplays in you. I mean, this is stuff that we got to hear because. Uh, yeah. You, like I said, you're living the life of a renaissance man, my friend. And uh, well, hope, hopefully, I mean, you know, his point again. I mean, you can't. Now that you br you brought it up, I didn't. <laughs> have you heard? Have you heard uh, Dylan's uh, new album? No, not yet. Okay. Well, I, I've heard uh, uh, one song, and I've seen the, the the list of songs. I'm I'm about to get it after uh, today. I'm going to get it, but. Bob Dylan was one of the uh, precursors of my education from naivete and reactionary to when I started to listen to his words, I said, well, you know, this guy has a bigger, wider point of view than I'll ever have. But I got to widen my my lens, my scope. And that's what I that's what I learned from Bob is not that his songs just are great. They are. And not that he's a genius, he is. But no, what he was telling me, I got to do to catch up, man. You know, 
are you aware of all this? No, I'm not. Well, you better get on it because I'm way ahead of you. And the reason I pick up on that is because his latest album, he is a Renaissance man. I know where he's going. You can tell he is back into the great poet writers, not the writer, not, uh, you know, on the road and, and, yeah. and Ginsburg. He's into Aeschylus. He's, in, he's into El Cid. He's into uh, uh, Plato. He's, he's into um, uh, who, uh, Homer. Yeah. I mean, he's writing poetry that those guys wrote, which are histories. In the old days, poets weren't poets. They were the newspaper of the day. Yeah. They, they were minstrels. They went around and reported what the hell's going on. Only they made it all rhyme. And they had some important people stuff in there, too. El Cid is the most amazing poem I've ever read. Uh, or oh, Dante. He was, you know, Dante. Dylan is a big fan of Dante. You I can know by, by the way he writes, by the, yes. uh, the word relationships, you know? Yep. Okay, so I was I was just looking at his album and I heard one song and I go, oh, he's back that far now. He's you know, and he gave us on this latest album. He gave us as a as a gift. Here, you want the sixties? Here, it's yeah. called "Murder Most Foul." It's, it's a song, nineteen minutes long. It's like El Cid. It's like a history. El Cid is the history of uh, I know. Spain. Yeah, early Spain and the night, and I know all about Ilse. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. But the poem is so visceral. Uh, you can yeah. see the horses and the blood. It's a, it's an amazing piece of writing. And he's he did that with with uh, with the sixties. Yeah, just, here's the sixties in ninety minutes, kids. Boom. <laughs> I, I love that. Oh man. So yeah, I mean that's. I guess I saw. I mean, it's a it's a great compliment, and I really appreciate it. But really, all it boils down to is my mom saying, "Oh, you're so talented." <laughs> no, he's serious, though. He he's not. No, he's. But but at least he's a marker. He's a marker, man. Yeah. That's that's what he is. You know, hey, you want to do something good? Well, this is <laughs> that's where you got to go. Yeah, this is it. Up way he's up. Here. See, that's yeah. the that's the thing about certain people. They're real. Yes. Thomas Jefferson is real. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> you know, that's, that's all I can ask. Well, I appreciate you, Larry, because uh, you're real, very real, and Thank we you. appreciate Thank the interview. Um, we'd love to have you on again. Uh, maybe when uh, the future, when the future, uh, the, the, the future gets uh, some, some uh, stones rolling here, uh, once you get that uh, screenplay going, you oh, let man. Uh, anytime, anytime you got you got a spot, man. <laughs> Thanks, okay. Larry. We appreciate it. Thank you. We'll be in okay. touch. Okay, now wait a minute. Uh, before you go, can you just the real Larry I just got to mention that. And um, I just going to be uh, on. Can you send me a link? Yep. We will send you a link and everything. We'll uh, we'll put little uh, links to your website and everything. Uh, we just oh, we just do a quick much. edit and then it'll it'll be up and it should be up in the next couple of days. Okay. Good night. Good night. <laughs> <laughs>